Pastor and Starry. They are on vacation today out on the East Coast. So like preseason football games, you came for the starter and you got the backup. So I'm sorry, but uh, we're going to look into God's Word this morning. Before Pastor left on vacation, he asked me to preach a couple of weeks here on something that would rally our church together. I don't know about you, but it, it just feels like for the last year and a half, We've just kind of been doing life and treading water and, and not really moving forward. So he asked me to consider that, and I talked with him about it. And the, kind of the summary, the phrase that I really selected here for the next couple of weeks is the phrase strategic regrouping. Strategic regrouping. A regroup means to reorganize after a setback for renewed activity. It's a temporary pause so that a group or an organization, a military unit can get together, can talk about what's gone on, and then can move forward. And so for us as a church, I think it'd be helpful for us to take a few weeks to reflect on some of the lessons we've learned from the last 18 months, to regroup, to strategically rally together so that we can then move forward and impact our community this fall. Regrouping is a military term. A regrouping unit will pull back from the front lines and prepare for another attack. It's, it's different than a retreat because a retreat implies that there's defeat and they're trying to run away from the battle. But a regroup implies that they're pulling back to gain a new strategy, to assess the situation, to maybe reorganize their unit so that they can then attack again and move forward. I'm not a military expert by any stretch of the imagination, but I suppose that a regroup could be necessary for any number of reasons. And as we think about it, the simplest reason that probably is the common denominator for all of these things is that the original objective for the unit was not accomplished. If you can accomplish your objective, there's really no reason to pull back. For whatever reason, the original objective was not accomplished. And so the regroup accomplishes several important things. It pulls back the unit to safety so they can talk amongst each other, maybe get refitted, get some food and supplies, articulate new objectives, and then choose a strategy to go forward as they advance. We can benefit from a time of regrouping. You, as you know, we're in a battle of spiritual warfare. And so this idea of regrouping certainly applies to us. And the first step for a successful regroup is to analyze our current situation figure out what we've learned, and then we can start talking about how to move forward. We have to learn from the challenges we've faced. Has anyone faced challenges the last 18 months? Can you think back to life before COVID? It's kind of hard, isn't it? Like, oh, what was life? Like, I don't have to wear a mask or carry it in my pocket or don't have to stay away from people. Or It's just hard to think back. We've all navigated the COVID-19 pandemic, but in addition, many of you have had substantial challenges, obstacles. Maybe you've lost a friend or a loved one to death. You've had job pressures, financial strains, fraying relationships, ill health. Those are just a few of the situations that you have faced. And I think all of us would say that we face some challenge to a certain extent, but many would go further than that and say that they have faced dire circumstances. So here's the question. Where do you turn in dire circumstances? The first step of regrouping really starts by answering this question. So I'll ask it again. Where do you turn 
in dire circumstances. I hope you're silently answering this, kind of having a little conversation with me in your mind. Please keep it there. Uh, It'd be kind of awkward if 300 of you started talking back to me. But I hope you're silently answering, I turn to God. I turn to the Lord. I turn to my relationship with the Lord Jesus. He is the one that helps me through dire circumstances. Jesus is the only person to get us through these things. And when we turn to Jesus in our distress, he not only works for us, but he works in us, doesn't he? He not only works in our circumstance, but he works in our hearts as well. Once we turn to Jesus, we can start to see what he is doing in our hardship. Because sometimes his purposes for us are not on the surface. They're not what they may seem at first glance. And our story in Mark chapter 9 here this morning is exactly like that. There were dire circumstances both at the surface and under the surface. Turn with me to Mark chapter 9, the passage just read in our scripture reading. And in this story, we meet two people facing very dire circumstances, a demon-possessed boy and his father. In verses 14 through 29, we read about a dramatic exorcism. Now, this story may seem fairly straightforward, right? A a demon-possessed boy comes to Jesus for healing. Jesus heals him, and he teaches the disciples a lesson, and they all go home happy. Well, this is not a Disney storybook ending, okay? This is not a story fashioned in Hollywood. This comes straight from the heart of our Savior. There's so much more going on here than just a demon-possessed boy being healed. Through this little incident, Jesus touches not only the boy, but also his father and the disciples. In this passage, Mark will use a number of vivid, forceful words that really communicate the emotional tension of this situation. As we kind of work through the story here, try to picture yourself in the crowd watching this, because this is not just a a casual thing that took place. Imagine being the boy's father and having your son, your child, be demon-possessed. There's real emotion here. There are real people that are really struggling with huge problems. See if you can feel the emotional tension rise as the story progresses. So let's start by looking at verses 14 through 16, and we'll see the story's setting. Verse 14, and when he, speaking of Jesus, came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately, when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he, speaking of Jesus, asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? What are you arguing about? Now, the story takes place immediately after, the story takes place immediately after the Mount of Transfiguration. In verses 1 through 13 of Mark chapter 9, we see Jesus go up into the mount. He is glorified there. There's a temporary vision of his glory. Peter, James, and John are there. They see it. Moses and Elijah talk with Jesus. Then they all come down from the mountain, Jesus and the three disciples. And Mark makes it seem like Jesus walks down the mountain. He finishes his hike, and he walks right into this crowd. In Luke, we read this story takes place the day after the transfiguration. But Mark is using the timing to emphasize the tension here. There's intensity to this story. And Jesus comes down from the mountain, and the scribes and the disciples are arguing. And this was something that happened frequently. Because they're disputing with one another. 
The crowds in verse 15 are amazed by Jesus. And the text doesn't say why they're amazed. Maybe they're amazed at his sudden coming. Maybe they're amazed that he showed up at just the right time. But they're amazed. And so they run to Jesus. Jesus enters the situation and calmly takes charge. He says to the scribes, what are you arguing with the disciples about? What's, what's the issue here? And it's at this point that an unnamed man answers. Look at verse 17 with me. Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit, a demon spirit. Verse 18, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. So the man explained the problem. His son had a demon. The boy had considerable pain. He was mute, and it caused seizures, which led to various other issues, foaming at the mouth, a stiffening of the body, teeth gnashing and grinding. It was traumatic, and certainly it was not healthy. But the biggest problem wasn't really the boy's condition. The biggest problem was right at the end of verse 18. Did you catch it? Is that this man brought the boy to the disciples but they couldn't do anything about it. They were not able to cast the demon out. So Jesus responds in verse 19. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. So Jesus has a twofold response. He asks two questions and then he, then he gives a command. The two questions come out really like a burdened sigh. How long will I be with you? How long do I have to bear with you? Well, who is he frustrated with? Let's start with that question. Who is he frustrated with? Verse 19 says, oh, faithless generation. He's looking at the crowd, probably looking to the scribes, the religious leaders, and, and calling them out. And he calls them what? He calls them faithless or unbelieving. He was frustrated with them because the Jewish people and the scribes at large did not believe in his ministry. He was frustrated in a righteous way at their unbelief. And he's asking kind of rhetorical questions. How long am I going to be here with you to help you understand and believe that I am the Messiah? Now over in Matthew's account, we read that Jesus rebuked the disciples' unbelief. So not only Jesus was Jesus frustrated with the crowds and, and the religious leaders, he was a little bit frustrated with the disciples. That's not normal. Jesus is very patient with these men. So why is he frustrated with the disciples in a righteous way? It's because he has already given them authority over unclean spirits. Mark chapter 6, 7 through 13 tells us that Jesus has already sent out the disciples two by two. And he's given them the ability to cast out demons. They're preaching the gospel. They're proclaiming the kingdom. And they have the power already given to them to cast out demons. But here in this story, what does Mark say about the disciples? They were unable the problem wasn't with the disciples' equipment. The problem was with their faith. Their problem wasn't a lack of authority or power. It was a lack of faith. We'll come back to that soon. 
So Jesus is frustrated with them. This is something they should have been able to do. So then he gives the command, bring the boy to me. I'll take care of him. And in verse 20, the plot thickens. The boy is brought to Jesus. Look at verse 20. And then they brought him, the boy, to him, Jesus. And when the boy saw him, all the hymns are a little confusing. And when the boy saw Jesus, immediately the spirit, the spirit within him convulsed him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So as soon as Jesus is seen by this demon, it convulsed the boy. It sent him into an epileptic episode. It did its thing right in front of Jesus, controlling the boy. And Jesus here then sees what's going on in this man's world. The father is probably looking going, well, here's what's been happening. Now, what would you expect Jesus to do here? When I read it, I expect him to simply rebuke the demon like he does in many other places. The demon comes out of him. Everyone goes home happy. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus does something incredibly fascinating. He turns to the Father and has a separate conversation with him. Why would he do that? And I think it's because Jesus believes the major problem is not the boy's physical condition, but the father's spiritual condition. So in verses 21 through 24, there's a subplot developing, and the tension is now building. Again, picture yourself in the crowd. Jesus is standing there. There's anticipation. The boy is convulsing at his feet. And what does Jesus do? He turns to the father and says, how long has this been happening to him? And maybe it's just me, but if I'm the father, I'm going, who cares how long it's been happening? Just heal the guy. Heal my son. So Jesus asks him, how long has this been happening to him? And again, the child is having an episode at his feet. The tension rises then. The father answers. And can you feel his emotion rising? Verses 21 and 22. And he said from childhood, and often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Dad says, this has been taking place since he was very young. And the demon has often tried to kill him. And he gives two specific ways, right? He's tried to throw him into the fire to burn him. He's tried to throw him into water to drown him. The demon is out to get my son. And I don't know if Jesus is not moving at this point, if there's a dramatic pause. But the father continues, if you can do anything, have compassion and help us. The father is desperate now. He kind of hit his tipping point, right? This is the straw that broke the camel's back. He can't get stretched any further. As an aside, can you identify with this? Have you hit a breaking point sometime in the last year and a half and you just think, I, I can't deal with one more thing. I can't go on like this. The father's request for help is based on Jesus's compassion. His main request is, if you can do anything, help us. Help us because you're compassionate, because you feel some pity or sympathy, help us. The father is headed in the right direction here because he's appealing to Jesus' compassion. And the gospel accounts record many times that Jesus was moved with compassion. If there's anything about our Savior that we should know, it's that he was moved with compassion for people. So the father is moving in the right direction, but he lacks something. And Jesus is going to bring that out. He lacks faith. In verse 23, Jesus really challenges him because he's now put his finger on the real problem. 
In verse 22, the father says, if you can do anything, and this is how Jesus responds. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. He challenged that conditional statement, if you can do anything. This verse literally reads, if you are able, all things are able to the one who believes. You see, I think what Jesus is doing here is he's repeating that statement back to him almost incredulously. Like, wait a minute, if I can, all things are possible for you if you believe. The problem wasn't with the Lord Jesus. He had the power all along. The problem was that this man was not trusting Jesus. So what is Jesus doing? He's calling on the man to increase his faith. And I think this is the real climax of the story. Because you kind of get the sense that if the man doesn't respond right, Jesus may say, well, have a nice day. But he doesn't do that. And the father doesn't respond wrongly. In fact, in verse 24, the father gives one of the greatest expressions of faith in the entire Bible. Immediately, the father of the child cried out. That word cry out is vivid. It means to shout out. No holding back. And he said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus has drawn out exactly what the man needed, which was simple faith in Jesus. So with the subplot resolved, with the father's faith now growing, Jesus turns his attention back to the boy. And he quickly casts the demon out. Look at verse 25. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit and said to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsing him greatly, and coming out of him, and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. So the main conflict is resolved here. Jesus casts out the demon. And the demon tried to leave with one more final show of strength. It was a power struggle to the end. But there was really no struggle here. Jesus' power triumphs with great authority. And when the demon came out in verse 26, it says he cried out. It's the same word used for the father. When the father cried out with faith, the demon cried out as he was sent away. He afflicted the boy, but Jesus heals him. So the story then concludes as a separate scene with the disciples in a house. And in verse 28, it says, and when he came into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. In other words, this kind can't come out without prayer and fasting. The disciples are confused. They ask, why couldn't we cast this one out? They knew that they had been given authority already. They knew they should have been able to do this. So they're trying to figure out what happened, what went wrong. Jesus says, you didn't pray. His answer pointed to their lack of dependence on God and thus their lack of power. Well, where do you turn in dire circumstances? That's the question we let off with this morning. The short answer is Jesus. That has to be our answer. We turn to Christ. We run to Christ, as the song says, and find a refuge sure. So we turn to Jesus in dire circumstances. But 
through this story, we learn so much more about turning to Jesus. It's not a simple, well, I bring Jesus my problem and everything goes happy. Jesus is doing far more than just fixing our problems. He's starting to fix us. And we can start to understand how Jesus will use our distresses to grow us and change us when we learn that Jesus is doing something through our desperation. He's doing something through the hardship. Here's the big lesson for the story. Jesus will use dire circumstances to help us rely on him alone. We're very self-sufficient people. We try to solve our own problems and figure it out on our own. And what Jesus is doing is frequently sending large obstacles that we cannot overcome so that we are forced to come back to him. For us to regroup as a church, we have to recognize that when we turn to Jesus in our distress, he will use these circumstances, hard, dire as they may be, he will use these to help us rely on him alone. You see, the boy learned this, the father learned this, the disciples learned this, and we have to learn this too. Jesus isn't just interested in fixing our situation. Certainly he can. We're going to talk about this in a moment. He is in control of all things. He can fix our problems. He can fix life. But he's more interested in growing us than in making us comfortable. He's more interested in producing virtue and character in us than just letting us have the easy way. When something hard comes in your life, do you try to get out of that hard situation as fast as you can? Do you go through that trial kicking and screaming, complaining, whining, arguing with God, blaming him? When we focus on getting out of the hard situation, we may actually be undercutting God's work in our lives. He may have chosen that hardship to teach us something. And instead of relying on the Lord and growing through the hardship, we focus on shallow goals like getting rid of the problem or getting others to feel bad for us. We fail to recognize what God is doing in us through the hardship. And when we fail to do this, when we fail to understand what God might be doing, we may miss valuable lessons that Jesus is teaching us through our dire circumstances. Imagine with me that the father simply said, well, Jesus, what more do you want me to do? I've brought my boy to you. I told you how long he's been struggling. Obviously, you can't do anything, and he walks away. And yet, how many of us kind of, kind of do the same thing? We come to Jesus, and we say, here's my problem. Deal with it. And then we start tapping our foot, checking our watch. Come on now. Fix it. And Jesus is saying, I'll fix the problem, but I want to grow you. Each of these human characters in the story learned a different lesson, and all three of these lessons apply to us. So let's talk about key lessons from dire circumstances. Let's start with the boy. In very surface level, very easy to see, the boy learned that Jesus has all the authority in the world. Jesus has authority over every circumstance that you face. He has the power to change lives. The truth is that Jesus is in control of the situation and he has the power to cast out any influence, any power. He has authority over all things. Two simple points. Jesus is in control of every situation. I'll give you one verse that supports this. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. Not just some things, 
Not just the things that happened since he came to earth. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus is Lord over all. He has authority over every situation you've ever faced and every situation you will face. Even the situations that you feel are hopeless, even the ones that are totally out of your control, they're not out of Christ's control. The COVID-19 pandemic is far beyond our control, is it not? Life has been restricted in ways we never thought possible in our freedom-loving country. None of us have any control over COVID. What's been your anxiety level about the pandemic? Maybe you're not anxious about it. Maybe you're just frustrated with it. You're ticked off about it. I just want it to be over. I want it to be done. Yeah, me too. (laughs) I'd love for it to be done. And now the media is reporting another wave of COVID, another variant. Did that put you in a tailspin? Did that rock your world? Knowing and believing that the Lord Jesus has authority over all things, including these microscopic germs affecting the entire world. Knowing and believing that Jesus has authority can calm our hearts. We don't have to be in control of our situation. We don't have to be in control of of the problem as long as Jesus is in control. And he is. That's the wonderful news, is that whether we recognize it or not, he is still in control. When we believe rightly, our emotions will follow. But you may be thinking, wait a minute, if Jesus is in full control of the situation, then why doesn't he just figure it out and wipe it away for us? Right? He can do that, so why doesn't he do that? Is he able to do anything about the situation? (laughs) Well, yes, he's able. The story shows over and over again that Jesus possesses unmatched power in every situation in life. His power is unrivaled. The demon's power was no match for Jesus' power. When Jesus cast out the demon, he proved who had the greater authority. The idea of ability flows throughout this whole text. Back in verse 18, the boy's father explained to Jesus that the disciples were not able to cast out the demon. In verse 22, the father exclaimed to Jesus, if you can do anything, if you are able to do anything, Jesus challenged him by repeating that statement, if I'm able. The disciples asked Jesus in verse 28 at the very conclusion, why were we not able to cast out the demon? And this word able communicates the power to do something. Why do we not have the power to do what you did? Who is the one who is able to cast out any demon? Who is the one that has the power to solve any problem? Who is the one that can heal any person and fix any problem in life? It's Jesus. And we use the phrase wrestling with our demons today to refer to a problem that just has complete control over us, right? Well, that family member is just wrestling with their demons of drunkenness. They just, they can't get away from the bottle. And maybe you've had demons in your life metaphorically. The boy had literal demons that controlled him. And and what did he do? He came to Jesus. He came to the only person that could fix him, that could heal him, that could deliver him. He came to the only person that could save him. Jesus has power over every situation. But so many of us don't come to Jesus. We don't surrender to him. We're too embarrassed maybe. Maybe we're too proud. Maybe we're too lazy to bring our problems to him. Maybe we don't have enough faith that he can actually heal us. That he can't help us overcome the demon we have. So what demon do you struggle with? What habit is too powerful for you? 
What problem seems to afflict you and always crush you and beat you down? You know what the answer is? Come to Jesus. Come to him. He has the power to work mightily in your life, but if you don't come to him, he won't work. He has the ability to do it. Come to him for healing. We just sang it a few minutes ago. I come broken to be mended. I come wounded to be healed. I come desperate to be rescued. Come to him for rescue. He has the power to transform you like he did this little boy. But this raises another question, doesn't it? What if you come to Jesus and you bring him your problem and you submit to him and he doesn't fix it immediately? Have you ever done that? You're wrestling with a decision. You're battling a sin struggle. There's something plaguing you. You get on your knees and honest before the Lord. You give it to him and you surrender it to him and you still struggle with it. So what's going on? We know that Jesus has the authority. So what is he doing? If he has the power to fix all things, then why doesn't he just do it? And that's the same question the father in the story had, right? He brought his son to Jesus and Jesus delayed. He didn't fix the problem immediately. The father had to learn his own lesson. And that's this. Jesus will use circumstances beyond our control to draw out greater faith in him. Jesus will use circumstances beyond our control to increase our faith because he wants us to feel the weight of our weakness so that we turn to him. A lot of us feel the weight of our weaknesses, don't we? But we're not doing the second half of that equation. We're feeling the weight, but we're not coming to Christ. Have you ever considered that Jesus may be intentionally stretching you to your limit for a specific purpose? That he's not removing the trial in your life because he's trying to teach you something through it? What might that purpose be? Well, in this story, that purpose was to increase the father's faith. He stretched the father to a breaking point, to a tipping point before he healed his boy. The father was desperate to see his son healed. But when, when did the boy actually get healed? It was after the father expressed greater faith. From Jesus' interaction with the Father, there, there are several essential truths we learn here. I just want to point your attention to them. First, the delay in Jesus' answer should not be interpreted as a lack of care or love. If Jesus is delaying answering your request or delivering you from the hardship, that's not because he doesn't love you. The Father said to Jesus in verse 22, If you can do anything, have compassion on us. The father didn't know if Jesus could help, so he appealed to Jesus' care. And, and what's the truth then about Christ's love? What's the truth about Christ's compassion? It's that Jesus cares for you and that he loves you and that his love for you will never change. Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Romans chapter 8, what can separate us from the love of Christ? The love of God is a stabilizing truth for us. It anchors us in the midst of our hardships. That though we may not know what's going on, we have something to hold on to. Don't doubt the love of Christ. Don't question his care for you. Scripture over and over again shows us so clearly that Jesus loves you. In fact, it points to the cross as the ultimate demonstration of his love for you. So if you're ever wondering if Jesus loves me, all you have to do is think, did he die for my sins? 
Yes, then he loves you. 1 John 3, 16, by this we know love because he has laid down his life for us. So what dire circumstance are you facing? Have you thought if God really cared about me, he would fix this? That may be really tempting to think, but that, that actually interprets the facts wrongly. That interprets the delay as a lack of love. Rather, we have to believe that Jesus is growing our faith because he loves us. Second, the delay in Jesus' answer should not be interpreted as a lack of power or ability. It's not that Jesus wants to help, but he just can't, okay? The father finished his request in verse 22 with a simple plea, help us. And sometimes Jesus' inactivity may tempt us to believe he doesn't actually have the power to help us. He has every good intention in the world, but he can't quite do it. That's totally wrong. That's wrong thinking. Because Scripture says in Hebrews chapter 2 that Jesus actually came to this earth, took on human flesh, so that he can help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 2.18, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able, there's that word for ability again, he is able to aid those who are being tempted. So we have to resist that temptation to doubt God's power or his ability to solve the problem we face. Third, Jesus may be pushing us to a point of desperation to grow our faith. And this is where we may say, yes, I understand that mentally, but it's really hard in practice. This is when we get stretched to the limit or things get very difficult and the father expressed this desperation in that little phrase, if you can do anything. Well, of course Jesus can do anything. He's God. But he may be allowing, because he's in full control, he may be allowing something hard in your life so that you will turn to him in desperation. We may question his wisdom in permitting these circumstances, but who are we to judge the Lord? As Isaiah 40 says, who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has taught him? Have you told God anything new? Have you informed God of anything? One of the most frustrating things for me as a parent of young children is that when my children correct me, I don't know if you've ever had that happen or had someone maybe that you're teaching do that. It's really like, dude, you're four years old. I brought you into this world. I'll let you finish it. It's really frustrating isn't it? So how much frustration would God have with you or with me because we tell God this is how it has to be and God this is how you're going to run my life. Romans 8, 28 through 30 tells us and we learn here that God is working all things in life to make us more like Jesus Christ. That includes the hard things, that includes the tragic things, that includes the hurtful things. He is using all things to make us more like Jesus, which means that he is working all things for good. Because the good is not our comfort. The good is our conformity to Jesus Christ. Don't doubt his wisdom. Don't question his process of making you more like Christ. Trust him because he knows exactly what you need to grow in faith. He knows exactly how much of an obstacle you need right now. The Lord knows that until we get desperate, we won't really lean on him. Until we've exhausted all of our options, we won't really depend on him. 
And it often takes dire circumstances to make us desperate from Christ. You say, well, does that mean that I'm just going to suffer for the rest of my life? Not necessarily. Here's the encouragement. Jesus doesn't require perfect faith from us. He's just looking for honest, growing faith. Because that's what the Father had. He's not saying, you need to figure out your whole problem and get perfect before I let you move on, before I take this thing away. He's simply looking for simple faith. You may remember the Father's famous confession, I believe, help my unbelief. In just purely grammatical terms, that's a paradox. You can't believe and have unbelief at the same time. But if if you've lived life at all, you understand exactly what that says. I believe, Lord, and I'm struggling with some unbelief. And that little phrase, I think, is a snapshot of the type of faith that Jesus is looking for. Because after he says this, Jesus heals his son. So this doesn't mean... Let me clarify, then we'll move on. This doesn't mean that Jesus is looking for the right amount of faith and then he'll heal you. This is not a faith and prosperity thinking where if you just put enough money in the plate or you have enough faith, you'll get healed. No, 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 no. Jesus is looking for simple, growing faith. He's looking for honest faith that actually is transparent about the state of our faith. The father said, help my unbelief. That's pretty honest. If he was trying to cover up something, he'd say, Lord, I believe I've got all the faith in the world. But he says, I need help. And after an honest confession of faith, our faith can grow. The first step to growing in our faith is to admit where we're at. And some of us may need to admit we're a little bit further back than we think we are. But Jesus doesn't rebuke the man for it. He doesn't condone the man. He doesn't shame the man. He simply says, yes, that's what I'm looking for. The size of our faith doesn't matter. It has to be growing. The object of our faith makes all the difference in the world. And when our faith is placed in Jesus, he can take care of the rest. Does your heart echo this statement, I believe, help my unbelief? When we doubt God, we cripple our spiritual lives. That's not a healthy state to remain in. But when you do have doubts, this is the exact thing you need to do, is come back to the Lord Jesus and say, Father, I believe. Christ Jesus, I believe. But I'm really struggling. Help my unbelief. Jesus doesn't demean you. He doesn't shame you. He invites you closer in. This brings us to the final truth, the same lesson the disciples learned. And it's similar to number two. Number three, Jesus will use circumstances beyond our strength to invite greater dependence on him. Number two is circumstances beyond our control to grow our faith. Third is circumstances beyond our strength to invite greater dependence. And the disciples had to learn this lesson the hard way here. They had to learn this lesson by experience. What did they learn? They learned that our inability reminds us we can't do anything without Christ. Here they were given the power to cast out demons and they still couldn't do it because they weren't depending on the Lord. They weren't depending on him in that moment. And we also have no spiritual power apart from the Lord. This is actually where Philippians 4.13 comes into play. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We as individual believers and as a church can't do anything apart from Christ. And our failures sometimes are stark reminders of that. 
Sometimes we do what we ought to do, but without the power to do it. And, and this is exactly what the disciples were doing. Sometimes we look at them and criticize them and say, well, they shouldn't have even tried. No, 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 that's wrong. They had already got the power to do it. They should be doing this, but they should have been able to do it. God is the one who enables all of our gifts and empowers every aspect of our service, God the Holy Spirit, to be specific. But we cannot presume upon the Spirit to bless us and empower us if we don't depend on him. The disciples should have expelled that demon, but they had no power to do what they were called to do. Living without God's power is a dangerous place to be. In fact, I think it's one of the scariest places in the world that that we could do the right thing, but without any perception of the power being gone. We should tremble at the thought of doing the right thing externally without realizing we've lost the power to do it. We can do everything needed for a successful ministry. Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. We can do anything and everything necessary for a successful ministry, quote unquote, but if God is not in it, it's not gonna go anywhere. That's why, letter C, prayer is the believer's power source that enables us to accomplish his will. Prayer ignites us with the power because it expresses our dependence on God. And then fourth, Prayer and fasting demonstrates a humble dependence on the Lord. This is, this is something the world looks at us and says, you're crazy. You're going to get on your knees. You're going to talk to somebody you can't see. And then you're going to go without food for a little bit. All you're doing is throwing up empty words to somebody that can't hear you. And then you're weakening your body on top of it. And we say, no, that's actually where the power comes from. Because 2 Corinthians 4, the power is not of us. It is of God. These activities remind ourselves that we are completely dependent on the Lord. And it's like we're placing ourselves in the, in the palm of God when we do this. In a few weeks, we're going to have a major church-wide outreach called Operation Saturation. We want to impact our community for the gospel. And so we've kind of bit off an ambitious plan here. We're going to try to put door hangers, literature, on like 15,000 homes in our neighborhoods. That's a huge undertaking And it really should wake us up because there are thousands of people living within walking distance of us who are on their way to hell today. And God's placed us in his sovereignty right here at 14711 West Morrison Road to reach these people with the gospel. But here's the thing that we need to be careful about is we can do this, we can organize it, we can run like a well-oiled machine, we can hit 20,000 homes, but if God isn't in it, it'll amount to nothing. And that's really scary, that we could do all this work and give all of our energy and forget the one who empowers all of it. So in the coming weeks, we're going to begin to pray about this because we're doing what God says to do. Christ says, you needed to pray. We need to pray. We're going to have times of prayer and fasting because it's right here. We need to pray and fast and beseech the Lord that God would do something and that there would be fruit that abounds because of this outreach. Well, let's wrap up this morning. Our time is up. Where do you turn in dire circumstances? If you've never come to Christ, if you're still wandering through life in your own wisdom and your own strength, you need to turn to Jesus. He's the only one that can heal the demon of your sin problem. He's the only one that can bring salvation to you. There is no other name, Acts 4.12, under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He is the only way, John 14.6. He can save you from the demon of your sins. 
And if you have turned to Jesus, you have a relationship with him like the disciples had, then understand what Jesus might be doing here. And I would not presume to speak for God and say very specifically what he's doing, but draw the principle from this text. Jesus is growing you. He is drawing out greater faith. He is drawing out greater dependence because he wants you to grow through the obstacle. There is no growth without hardship. There is no progress without challenge. What is it that the Lord is growing you in through your dire circumstances? How is the Lord blossoming your faith, making it a sweet-smelling aroma to him? Whatever that may be, let's regroup today and rely on Jesus alone. Would you bow with me for prayer? And before we pray, perhaps there's someone here that's never trusted Christ as Savior. Perhaps you've never done what the boy and his father did, which was come to Jesus to begin with. If that's you, we want to help with that. We want to show you how saving faith in Jesus opens up the world to you. Would you come see one of us after? We'll be in the lobby, we'll be down front, we'll be around. We'd love to answer your questions. Friends, believers, what's God trying to teach you? Reflect on it as we pray. Father, thank you for this little story, really a gem of a story. And I think we all identify with the Father's desperate faith. And in our weakness, we confess our unbelief. We confess our frailty. We confess our lack of ability. And we rely totally and solely on the Lord Jesus. May he sanctify our lives. May he grow our faith. May he increase our dependence on on him. And may he prosper our evangelism in the coming weeks. May we truly reach and impact our community the streets and the neighborhoods within walking distance. May we reach these precious people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do your work in us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.